This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Zachary Everett Davis? First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. Zachary Everett Davis was born on July 29, 1997, and was initially raised in Bowling Green, Kentucky. After his father died of an illness in 2007, Zachary, his mother Melanie Davis, and his older brother Josh moved to Hendersonville, Tennessee. Melanie worked as a paralegal, and Zachary and his brother went to school, as would be expected. Zachary became more withdrawn after the death of his father. Eventually, he started exhibiting behavior, which alarmed his mother, Melanie. She had him treated by a mental health clinician when he was 11 years old. He was diagnosed with depressive disorder and was described as psychotic. Zachary claimed to be hearing voices, including the voice of his dead father. For some reason, Zachary's mother discontinued his mental health treatment. Since middle school, Zachary demonstrated a flat affect. He spoke in a low volume, and there was not much variation in his tone. It was almost like he was trying to conceal his real voice. Zachary took an interest in topics like serial killers and torture, and enjoyed playing violent video games. He really did not seem to have any friends. In school, people mostly avoided him. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On the evening of August 10, 2012, 15-year-old Zachary, his 45-year-old mother, Melanie, and his 17-year-old brother, Josh, went to a movie together. When they returned home, Zachary packed a number of items into a backpack and a satchel, including notebooks, gloves, a claw hammer, a ski mask, a cigarette lighter, earplugs, pocket knife, and clothing. Zachary's mother and his brother went to bed sometime around 9 p.m. At about 11 p.m., Zachary retrieved a Stanley sledgehammer from the garage. He entered his mother's bedroom and, without saying a word, hit her in the head with the sledgehammer somewhere between 8 and 15 times. Melanie made gurgling noises after the attack. Zachary put a pillow over her head 
because he was worried his brother would wake up from hearing the noise. After his mother died, Zachary locked her bedroom door and made his way upstairs to another room in the house, which he referred to as the game room. Using whiskey as an accelerant, he set the game room on fire and exited the house. His brother Josh woke up to the sound of the smoke alarm. He ran to his mother's bedroom to make sure that she exited the house. Upon discovering her door locked, Josh kicked it in and found that his mother had been murdered. Josh exited his home and ran to a neighbor's house. Zachary went to a store and bought two Diet Pepsis and a street map of Tennessee. This was at about 2.30 a.m., now on August 11. The police found Zachary about a half hour later and placed him under arrest. He was walking about five miles from his house at that point. The police interviewed him after he waived his Miranda rights. Zachary admitted to killing his mother and setting his house on fire. He said that he planned the murder and waited for his mother and brother to go to sleep. He intended to kill both of them. He thought the fire would kill his brother and was disappointed when he found out that it didn't. Zachary regretted not attacking his brother with a sledgehammer. The police asked Zachary if he loved his mother. He said, somewhat. Zachary was charged with first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and aggravated arson. He filed a motion requesting a forensic evaluation, and it was ordered by the court. In September 2012, he was found competent to stand trial. In April of 2015, Zachary Davis was found guilty on all counts. In Tennessee, first-degree murder carries a mandatory sentence of 60 years, with parole eligibility in 51 years. In addition to this sentence, Zachary received 20 years for the other two charges to be served consecutively. He will have to spend at least 71 years in prison. Now moving to my analysis. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Zachary has offered many different potential motives for his behavior. He said that the voice of his dead father commanded him to kill his mother. Zachary accused his brother of committing terrible offenses against him, but there is no evidence to support this claim. 
He said that his mother was not taking care of the family. It's not clear what he meant by this. When Zachary testified in his own defense, he changed his story on the stand. He accused his brother of being the killer. Zachary claimed that he only confessed to protect his brother. There is absolutely no doubt that Zachary Davis was the killer and that he worked alone. Interestingly, Zachary's testimony on the stand was surprising even to his own defense. His defense attorney did not use Zachary's new claim in closing arguments. Item number two, a lot of information came out about Zachary's mental health during his competency hearing. He was evaluated by four mental health clinicians. This wasn't about legal insanity. Rather, it was to determine whether he was competent to stand trial. Zachary knew the difference between right and wrong, therefore did not qualify as legally insane. The clinicians did not agree about Zachary's clinical presentation. I will go through the different diagnostic impressions on the clinicians. The first clinician said that Zachary heard voices and was psychotic. He had been hearing voices for years. He had delusional beliefs about the guards in jail trying to poison him. This clinician said that Zachary was not malingering. His presentation of symptoms was highly consistent, and he was not dramatic. Often when people are malingering psychosis, they exaggerate the symptoms to such an extent. Their presentations no longer align with other people who are actually psychotic. So essentially, they overdo the symptoms. The clinician thought that Zachary had autism spectrum disorder and that he was isolated. He did not have body language, his eye contact was inconsistent, and he did not initiate conversations. Zachary had an above-average intelligence with an IQ score of 111. She thought that Zachary was not competent to stand trial. The second clinician found Zachary to be somewhat resistant, but it may have been due to paranoia, like Zachary was afraid of the clinician. There was no variation in Zachary's posture or speech pattern throughout the interview. The clinician said that Zachary was not malingering. He met the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia and major depressive disorder. The psychosis may have been brought on by the death of his father. This clinician concluded that Zachary was not competent to stand trial. The third mental health professional thought that Zachary had major depressive disorder and was competent to stand trial. She said that he did not have schizophrenia because people with that disorder were, quote, not able to form thoughts in their head, unquote. There is absolutely no basis in science for this clinician's statement, although one could make an argument that the clinician was having trouble forming thoughts in her head. She also thought that Zachary's grades were too good to have schizophrenia. Perhaps this theory was born out of the clinician's lack of personal experience with good grades. The fourth clinician diagnosed Zachary with psychosis, not otherwise specified which is a diagnostic classification that no longer exists. This clinician believes Zachary was competent to stand trial. The disagreement among these clinicians is not unusual when looking at the intersection of mental health and the law. Mental health theories and treatments are not compatible with the criminal justice system. Item number three, considering the available evidence, what was going on with Zachary Davis? Well, there is no way to be sure, as we see, Clinicians who interviewed him for hours could not agree on a diagnosis, but I think it's reasonable to believe that his symptoms align with schizophrenia. It's rare that this disorder would affect someone as young as Zachary, but it is certainly not unheard of. He mentioned hearing voices years before the murder. 
he had paranoid delusions. Zachary presented consistently with a flat affect, inappropriate laughter, and was not animated at all. It's clear that Zachary suspected that he had this disorder because a week before he committed the murder, he went online and searched the term paranoid schizophrenia. If Zachary does not have schizophrenia or another disorder associated with psychosis, then he's doing a pretty good job of malingering. Item number four, what do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. After Zachary's father died, he had a psychotic break. He could not cope with such a tremendous loss. Melanie ignored the symptoms for a while, but eventually took him to a mental health clinician to be treated. When the clinician said that Zachary was psychotic, Melanie was not ready to believe that. She refused to think of Zachary as being in this position where she could lose him. She had lost her husband, and she was not willing to lose her son. Psychosis isn't fatal, but to Melanie, it probably felt that way. It was a loss that she was not willing to sustain. She discontinued Zachary's treatment and pretended that everything would work out fine. For his part, Zachary played along, but not for his mother's sake, rather due to his paranoia. He didn't trust anyone enough to tell them what he was thinking and feeling. He tried to figure out the meaning of his conflicting and frightening thoughts and feelings by himself. Over time, Zachary's delusions became increasingly pronounced and dangerous. Zachary kept a notebook where he wrote unnerving messages and drew cartoons featuring decapitation and people being blown up by explosives. Zachary probably came to believe his mother and his brother were a threat to him somehow or deserved to die. He may have actually believed that his brother had offended against him. This was a delusion. On the day of the murders, Zachary was reading the book Misery by Stephen King. In the movie, based on the book, a sledgehammer was used as a weapon. This gave Zachary an idea. He killed his mother, set the fire, and ran away. Zachary threw his cell phone in a ditch, probably believing that the government or some evil conspirators were tracking him. He did not seem to care that much about legal consequences. Years later, at his trial, Zachary changed his story because he had come to learn, through his time in prison, that trying to escape consequences is a good idea. Zachary was still not really afraid of remaining in prison. He was just doing what he thought he was supposed to be doing. Now moving to my final thoughts. It is possible that Zachary Davis would have become a killer regardless of whether he was treated or not, but clearly getting treatment would have made more sense. I doubt the outcome of treatment would have been any worse than a sledgehammer matricide. The problem with having a delusion is that sometimes it can make a person believe that violence will help satisfy the concern raised by the delusion. So the delusion gives the person a bad solution to the delusion itself. The commitment to the delusion is often less than 100% when a person first experiences symptoms, but over time, the individual comes to believe the delusion completely. At that point, the delusion is running the show and no one is going to appreciate its leadership style. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. 
Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.